Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform, and otherwise alter you. Good luck. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Losers Club, the Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Rose Red Rothman, and today we are continuing and hopefully concluding our discussion on Stephen King's Everything's Eventual. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Stop this episode now and catch up with our rather wonderful chat from last week. It's a little lengthier than the one we're going to go on for today, but we had to split it up because otherwise we're going to get a talisman-sized episode. So, uh, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, up ahead, we've got seven more stories to discuss, the best of them, you might say. Although, as I said before, best and, and worst, they're, they're, it's, a, it's more of a situational thing here. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's introduce ourselves again. I, uh, here in Chicago with me is Rockin' Randall Road Virus. Oh, getting chills thinking about it. Uh, and down in Nashville is Jen to the Rage Adams. Oh, sequelitis. Uh, I'm getting yes, uh, <laughs> and keeping it weird as always. Ashley, the woman in the black suit, Cassidy. Oh, that's a little hint as uh, to one of the stories we'll be discussing in the seven coming up ahead. But uh, I don't know if you're feeling lucky. But we've got lucky number seven to discuss. And that story takes us to a place of the dead, a place only coroners visit. And that place is autopsy room four. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. So this one <laughs> dates back to that six stories collection from 1997 that we discussed last week. Let's hear what King said. Uh, Jen, take it away. All right. At some point, I think every writer of scary stories has to tackle the subject of premature burial, if only because it seems to be such a pervasive fear. When I was a kid of seven or so, the scariest TV program going was Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and the scariest AHP, bleh, AHP, my friends and I were in total agreement on this, was the one starring Joseph Cotton as a man who has been injured in a car accident. Injured so badly, in fact, that the doctors think he's dead. They can't even find a heartbeat. They're on the verge of doing a postmortem on him, cutting him up while he's still alive and screaming inside. In other words, when he produces one single tear to let them know he's still alive. That was touching. <laughs> but touching isn't in my usual repertoire. Well, not all kinds of touching. When my own thoughts <laughs> turn to this subject, or more, shall we say, modern method of communication, liveliness occurred to me. And this story was the result. One final note regarding the snake. I doubt like hell if there's any such reptile as a Peruvian boom slang. But in one of her Miss Marple capers, Dame Agatha Christie does mention an African boom slang. I just liked the word so much. Boom slang, not African. I had to put it in the story. I do like that word, boom slang. Boom Boom slang. slang. I like boomerang starring uh, Eddie Murphy. Um, I'd like to change my name to Jen Boom Slang. (laughs) All right. That's uh, that, that's fair. That's fair. Um, this is all mid-tier for us, um, which is why it arrives at the middle of this ranking list. Um, you know, it's essentially one long dick joke, uh, which <laughs> isn't bad. Um, but I'd argue for me, this would be higher if King, um, I don't know, uh, was a little meaner, drew blood 
Because I feel like if this was written in the 70s and this was in Night Shift, that would have cut him open. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I, yeah, yeah that, that's the version I want, I yeah, think. Same. This, uh, I still loved it, like just because it's funny. Like I, yeah. I, I was laughing and, and shrieking during this whole story. So I think that in that way, it's very successful. It just, it ends with such a fart that mm-hmm. it kind of like basically he gets a boner and that's what does it. And then he dates the doctor and it ends with this <laughs> idea of like, oh, he can't, you know, he can't get a boner anymore unless it's like a role play kind of thing. It's, it's very silly. And, um, but it reminded me, I said this to you, Mike, uh, in the latest season of I Think You Should Leave on Netflix, there's an incredible sketch where uh, a guy keeps eating. He's at dinner with some of his former students and he keeps trying to eat. He keeps eating the burger of one of the, the other people and, over and over again. And then it, it the, the sketch goes all these different weird places, uh, like plumbing the depths of this man. And then it ends with him like they clearly didn't know how to end it. So it ends with him making like a like a really, really crude uh like dick joke or like uh cunnilingus joke basically and uh because they didn't know how else to end it and then everybody groans and that's the end of it like that's literally to me like this story is like it's so great and it's flitting all these other directions and building up this tension but he doesn't really quite know how to end it so it kind of is just everybody goes ah you know in the end <laughs> it's like mm. it's like sitcom credits where everybody pauses like giving shrugs and, yeah and, you know and uh then we just move on so but I do yeah. love I do love it. It's fun. But. This was actually one of the ones I remembered, like start to finish. Uh, I assume I read it more than once <laughs> when I was younger. Um, I didn't remember much after the boner and realizing that he was still alive. Like I didn't remember the whole um, like the snake is still loose in dairy, which was kind of uh, scary. Yeah. Mm. But do you guys remember the Tales from the Crypt episode where they did this? where uh, the guy was getting an autopsy and um, they made it seem really real, but it turns out it was his friend like playing a prank on him and had like paralyzed him. Do you guys remember? It rings a bell because I- It's so good. Tales in the Crypt was the first thing I thought of when I was reading this. So I I had to remember that, but- And so that one gets meaner though, right? It's pretty mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to the point where they hang his body on a meat hook and it, it's real dark and it's real gory. Um, and that's the one I kept thinking of. And I, for some reason, I think I just thought there was going to be a twist like that at the end, uh, mm-hmm. like that episode. And I didn't quite get it. I remembered the boner. Yeah, this story was just like it was a fun reread, but I anticipated it being a favorite. And so when it wasn't, I was I was a little bit more let down than I maybe would have been if I had read it for the first time and like didn't remember loving it so much. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll just yeah, say it, like the 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 scissors have long sharp blades, very sharp blades, and fat mm-hmm. finger holes. Uh, the lower blade slides into the gut like butter, then snip up through the bundle of nerves at the solar plexus and into the beef jerky weave of muscle and tendon above it, then into the sternum. When the blades come together this time, they do so with a heavy crunch as the bone parts and the rib cage pops apart like a couple of barrels which have been lashed together with twine. Like he's having, I love he's, that. He's having uh... a riot, man. And that's like, that to me is, uh, is that's like the fun thing is, is, you know, he, he's licking his lips while writing this shit you know this is fun and- yeah which is what makes it such a good first story yeah yeah because yeah, totally it's got a good vibe to it uh jen mm-hmm. well yeah i anticipated this kind of being a favorite too because it's so memorable you know 
It's also read by Oliver Platt, which is oh, just man, oh, that's wow. perfect. That is like, perfect. I like to think that this is his punishment for being the only one in Flatliners who does not do the Flatliner thing. Um, but yeah, and he <laughs> that's just, a, oh, he that's is a good great. point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he is a he, he just reads it so well. Um, and I and as the first one, it's kind of where I was ranking everything against, you know, like, do I like it more than Autopsy Room 4 or less? Because it just kind of is. I feel like it doesn't really have any overall weight to it like I don't bring anything of my own personal life to this story but yeah. it is really fun it reminds me of um, Autopsy of Jane Doe which is one of my favorite movies um, although I feel like I bring a lot more to that story I love um, that movie yeah I do too but yeah. in just the the terror of being in that situation I think and I love that it's written in first person and we're really kind of experiencing this from inside the bag I like his slow realization of what's happening and it's one that i've listened to a lot um over and over again too but yeah i kept as i was ranking other ones i kept saying well yeah i like this one better i like this mm -hmm. one better i like yeah. this one better and that's how it got pushed down to about mid and i think that's a great place for it you know yeah i think yeah it's it's not it's not a deep fear it's a very like yeah. surface level everyone's afraid of dying everyone's especially afraid of being buried alive you know what mm -hmm. i mean like or people thinking you're dead when you're not like or even just the the idea of going under anesthesia but remembering or, or uh -huh. experiencing everything during your surgery like that's a very base level like you don't have to look too much deeper into it it's fucking scary mm -hmm. <laughs> and like there doesn't have to be a deeper meaning behind it and just to throw a boner in on top of it is yeah, it's the boner Delicious. really that I think sort of defangs the story. Uh, yeah, and, which is fine. Like I don't need every. I I I love a good story like this. Like this is the kind of stuff he would have published in Skin Mags, you know, in the seventies, yeah. and mm -hmm. only in those I think he would have had the guy get killed. But it's um. But at the same time, I love a good story like this. I hope he never stops writing stories like this because it's uh, it's good stuff. Do we need to know like? all about the house with the snakes though like i mean it just seems kind of like you could have just been like eh, it's a little bit without... of gerald's game retcon yeah of. it was just like all right we get it you know there was the snake was yeah. somewhere like the, the thing that the beauty about some of those earlier stories is that you just don't really put much thought into like the why you know yeah. i don't really get i yeah. don't care about the why it doesn't like, matter where the snake came from could have came yeah. from outer space Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. like you know, they instead they have this like you know the house belonged to a bachelor bank clerk named Walter. Kerr. Like I don't need to know this. <laughs> like yeah. no one ne needs to know this. Just know that. Because then like, it just sets up more questions where it's like, what's Walter up to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Give me Walter's story. Like, what yeah. the yeah. fuck does he have all these poisonous snakes for? Yeah, I will say. This dairy is just not a good place to live in. Oh, dude. You know, I mean, just, you know what the fuck's going on here? You it's got killer scary, clowns yeah. and uh, aliens and everything. And so, we get another okay. dairy story in this one, too. Yeah. We do, yeah, yeah. Well, um, any, anything else on the outside? Anything you want to cut open here? Mm -mm. Where would you, if we were going to go meatier and bloodier with it, would you have, I, I, I would want him to die. But I would want like maybe a limb lost or something like that, right? Maybe they or, cut like... the top of his skull off because I think you can still survive. Like we've seen Hannibal. Hannibal. Oh, I was gonna say yeah. the late Ray, Ray Liotta. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> rest but, in uh, peace. Rest in R. peace. He's, 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 a, he's a good fellow himself, as we he just, just talked about the mobs. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, Lucky seven with the autopsy room four. So that was good. Six. Uh, kind of reads a little bit like a, um, a John Lennon song, actually. All that you love will be carried away. This one dates back to a January 29th, 2001 issue of The New Yorker. Uh, King said, I like to drive. 
and I'm particularly addicted to those long interstate barrels where you see nothing but prairies to either side and a cinder block rest area every 40 miles or so. Rest area bathrooms are always full of graffiti, some of it extremely weird. I started to collect these dispatches from nowhere, keeping them in a pocket notebook. Got others off the internet. There are three, two or three websites dedicated to them, which is so weird. And finally found the story in which they belong. This is it. I don't know if it's good or not, but I cared very much for the lonely man in its center and really hope things turned out well, okay for him. In the first draft, things did, but Bill Bert Buford of The New Yorker suggested a more ambiguous ending. He was probably right, but if we could all say a prayer for the Alfie Zimmers of the world. I had this one the highest, and I think it's because, like King, I really did find myself obsessed with the man at the center of the story um, because, not to get too personal, I found myself a lot like the man in the center of the story. Um, you know, I'm not going to get too personal again, but there, I, I, I've been suicidal in nature over, over the last few years. And not, and not even just like the literal suicidal. It's just the idea. There's a comfortability sometimes when you know you can just go. You know, mm -hmm. and and I think when you have a high pressured lifestyle, sometimes you know, and perhaps a lifestyle that you're not happy in, obviously suicide comes to mind. But there's also things where you're in high stakes situations, and you have that in your back pocket, where you can basically just be like, "All right, you know what? Shit hits the fan. I so can I. I can just check out." And <laughs> and I and I, I kind of understand where you know Alfie is at here. And I don't think this is the only time he's ever done it. And I think he's probably done this multiple times and he has that sort of countdown and multi more often than not, the farmhouse wins and you know, you're good and you're able mm -hmm. to, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're safe. Yeah. Um, but I, man, this one stuck with me and it's, and it's really the one that, um, got me so sucked into this book. I said, oh, he's going places with this one. This is interesting. And and I think it's fitting that this was in the New Yorker because, um, you know, no shade to New Yorker, which is a pretentious rag. But um, I, I love, you know, it it fits in that in that sense because I think this is yeah. a very high literary fiction. And I think the tiniest of the details that they had in this, the weather, the motel, the dire outlook, I, it was just hypnotizing to me. So. I think you have to kind of get personal with it because I, I, I wrote when I was going over my notes almost the exact same thing you did that like there is um, a power in the fact that like no one can take that one thing from you even if they could take mm -hmm. everything else from you they can't take the fact that you're I mean they can kill you for sure but the decision to check out is always there and there is like sort of a power in that and it is a coping mechanism for people who suffer from anxiety and depression like I have such a severe anxiety disorder that there have been times where it's literally like okay well if xyz happens then like you know I'm just kill myself and like mm -hmm. it's not dark like that's the thing that people don't understand about people who are suicidal is that it's not really that dark to you and like mm -hmm. that's why we are so we can joke about suicide so easily and we can be so crass about suicides because like I never thought of it like oh how sad that I would kill myself it was just like I'd kill myself and it's fine and like mm -hmm. that sort of like weird stakes I don't think would register to people who haven't felt that way before of like okay well if the, the you know the the lights come on or if if the next commercial is Clorox then I won't drink Clorox. You know what I mean? Mm, like there's no. little sort of games that you play. Yep, that totally. That aren't 
that dark to you, really. They're not that serious to you. Mm-mm. And yeah. it's um, it was interesting to read this. It didn't end up being that high for me, and I, I don't know why, because I actually really liked this story. I just think others won over yeah. it, you know? Same. But uh, I, I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I liked the the kind of game at the end of it, too. And that's something that I have done a lot. Like if I hear this song on the radio, mm. I'm going to do this. Or if I and that's I looked at tarot for that for a long time, like mm-hmm. whatever card comes up, that's going to tell me what to do. And it's really just kind of looking for this approval for something that I either do or don't want to do already. I just can't say it, you know, and you yeah. want like cosmic affirmation. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And like I what I think I love so much about this is that it is such a dark story but it doesn't feel super dark it feels like like floating dark you know and that's the way a lot of my like like I have intrusive thoughts that are suicidal and there's no real weight to them but they come into my head and I have to let them go I've realized now if I just say it out loud or if I just kind of let it pass through my head then it goes away and that's kind of what this story feels like to me is like he's looking for some way to let this thought pass out of his head and it's like if these lights come on then I can dismiss this thought and I wonder I mean he says I guess in the intro that it does turn out well for him um and I think that's why I connected with it so much is that I don't really feel like he wants to end his life. I feel like this is just something in his head that he can't get out. And he is trying to um, find something that will allow him to get it out. I also love the idea of collecting words in a notebook. I think there's like, I've tried to do that before and I just can't make myself do it. But I just think I would love to look through his notebook. I think there's such a fascination and romanticism about that. And and then the notebook is such a, perfect token because it really it, it just reveals the irony of the situation and mm-hmm. that it's like the, the joke where it's like oh i'd kill you know um uh, you know I, when i kill myself i'm gonna put, put the gun in my mouth but i want to clean it before i put it in you know <laughs> and, and that's, that's the idea it's like oh well you're you're worried about that so there's a sense of of life and survival instinct that you have with you which means that you're not going to really you're probably you're not going to do it yeah and yeah, and, that, and the fact that he's thinking. worried about the notebook and where they're going to find it it's like oh there's that you're still having your survival instinct on. You don't know it yet, yeah. but that is the survival instinct. And that, to me, uh, speaks volumes about the sort of um, depth of knowledge that King's coming in with this story. Mm-hmm. Because it's that's humor, I mean, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the human condition right there, too. It, well, it's, yeah. it's humor. It's This yeah. is what I love is the... And like this speaks to what you were saying, Ashley, is that it's not suicide often for the person who is, is um, thinking about it. There is there is the comfort of control, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the one thing in yeah. your life you can always have control over. There's that. But then it's also the the humor of, of well, when they find my body, what will that be like? Yeah. And you're thinking yeah. about that. And like the idea of him trying to hide this notebook in various places and then thinking about all the potential outcomes is such a wonderful way to explore suicide in a funny way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I agree because I feel like as tab- taboo as that is, it's one thing that I feel like nobody ever gets mad when people explore it comically, like, uh, or at least, you know, by and large, people don't. I feel like there's a lot of comedies that center around notions of suicide because yeah. I think I think that it there is an extremity to it. And there is also all of these worries that go associated with it that uh, that if you really wanted to kill yourself, you wouldn't be as worried about. And that to me is is the humanity that that was the engine of the story was the humor and also what made convinced me that there was no way 
way he was going to kill himself, mm-hmm. like because he was too concerned with all those things, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and that does speak to exactly what you were saying, Mike, which is a kind of idea of self-preservation. In if you were really suicidal, you probably wouldn't be thinking about that. But but for me, what I loved about this story is, and this is where I tapped in, is I also am fascinated by scraps of text that exist in um, weird places. And the mm-hmm. funny thing about this is I have, I have kind of two ways in and um, one is more resonant than the other, but I'll say uh, uh, a lot of what he's talking about with these sort of like nonsense phrases that are written in stalls. That's like Twitter now in a lot of ways, yeah. like yeah, where yeah. the people that I primarily follow are people who write things like about diarrhea. You know what I mean? It's like the stupidest, most insane tweets, uh, just complete gobbledygook, but they're really funny in a weird, offbeat kind of way. Uh, like, And that's the kind of stuff I follow a lot because it reminds me, in a way, of the weird stuff you would see scribbled. Like, you know, Drill. Like, if you follow Drill on Twitter, uh, great follow, but he'll just post stuff that is is just pure nonsense. But there is something... And there's a line in this story where he talks about, is it humor or is it a howl of rage? You know, and he's speaking Mm. about various ideas, I think. But I think some of these things that are written on these stalls, they go from uh, profane to profound, right? And they exist in these these little pockets of of crudeness, uh, profanity, but then profundity. And uh, and I love I love that idea. And it, it speaks to something I was really fascinated with some years ago. And I tried to like build a play out of this and I did write one, but nobody would produce it because it was insane. But it was um, I, I used to get spam emails and I there was this period of st- spam emails where they were it was uh, AI generated text uh, that was weirdly haunting like when you would read them so i started like collecting text that i was getting in spam emails and i've 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 used some of the lines in plays that i've written like uh one line i always remember that was in a spam email was uh she pulled fire she pulled the wings off a fly and still called it a fly uh which was to me just this like gorgeous piece of prose that was generated by you know some profane computer and Mm -hmm. uh and then also there was this great spam email I got that's like legendary amongst me and my friends where uh, it's from somebody named Timothy Stuff and he's selling you um, air-to-air rockets and child sex slaves and it says stuff just kind of like uh, child sex slaves two for one uh, buy now and get right to business you know and it's like it's like written like a pitch man and he's like mm. air-to-air rockets buy one at, at you know uh, $25,000 get one free and it's like stuff like that and mm. We thought it was the funniest email ever because it's like black weapons on the black, you know, or like, you know, like uh, uh, heavy artillery on the black market. And it's like written like, you know, a target email. And yeah. so um, so I don't know. I became fascinated with with um, that sort of thing, which feels like an extension of what uh, he's doing in this, which is like uh, not finding profundity from philosophers or the great writers or anything or or even from fiction but from finding it from scribblings on walls and that to me is uh is something i find deeply uh interesting and profound yeah well and that that profundity is something that i feel it comes from a very fringe place like this whole story is built from ground up from exploring areas that we just we know are out there but we drive by them and we, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I think about this all the time, especially I used to have to drive from Tallahassee to South Florida. And um, that's like a six hour drive, five and a half or whatever. But um, you'd be going through areas where I, sometimes I would be driving out there and, you know, this is the 
before smartphones and, and all this other stuff. And so you really just had to lean on like whatever CDs you had in the car. And so you mind wanders a lot. And one of the things I always thought of was just like, I wonder if there's places in the field that no human has ever stepped on. Or like, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's, you know, you know, I'm looking at that mountain up there. Has anyone ever really actually gone up it? There's nothing there. So why would anyone really need to go up it? And so has there been? And would there ever even be a record of knowing that? And like that go- went me on a wormhole of like, just areas that you just don't think about. It's like, I, I've always been fascinated even with just like, look when I wake up in the morning and I look around at the corners of my room sometimes and I'm like, man, what a lonely concept of just like these corners exist and nothing's ever gonna be there, but they are there because space necessitates their need for it. And I'm getting really existential on this stuff. But like, I thought of that in this story in that when you think about just the whole thing, it's just like this you know, small town in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, this motel that, you know, goes in, you know, certainly handsome, you know, people come and go for the most part, fairly removed from everything. It's icy, it's snowing. There's a farmhouse in the distance that has life and there is life in these things, but what is this life that's in there? And that's what King's getting at. And it kind of ties into what you're saying, Randall, with these, these sayings. It's like these quotes have life in them. They come from people. They come from people that have point of view, that have some sort of thing to say. And most of the time they're just left off in a stall that people pass through and day in and day out. But there is still life tied to it. And that loneliness of that feeling is something that just felt so palpable to me that fueled this character's uh, entire arc. And I think that's ultimately what made, when I said it was hypnotizing, is where I got into it. It took me back to those moments when I was driving, when I was thinking about it. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, sorry, I went yeah. that rant, but no, that's kind of where I was at. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the only the only movie trailer that's ever brought a tear to my eye is uh, Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers yeah, movie. Yeah. They're playing that beautiful song that, you know, is at the center of the movie. And there's a scene in the trailer that I remember cut me like a knife when I was watching it was when he's in the stall and he he mm. looks on the wall and it says, what are you doing? And yeah. it's just written on the stall in the bathroom. And I was like. Good God. Like the weight <laughs> carried in that is so heavy. And like, that's, that's a, that's a great movie, but it's very hard to watch because it hits really close to home. And uh, yeah, so I think, I don't know. I, I love that he sort of, he packaged this interesting story about a suicidal man uh, with that kind of uh, storytelling device was really mm. interesting. I've never quite seen that before. So. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like you could find it in a painting, you know? Like uh, find a painting that you might have on a wall and you just kind of look at it and you're like, eh, whatever. Or maybe it's a painting that scares you. Um, and that's certainly a painting that uh, is featured in our next story, The Road Virus Heads North, number five. Five. Uh, so this one dates back to 999, New Stories of Horror and Suspense, which was changed to 999, 29 Original Tales of Horror and Suspense. Um I don't care which fine titles either one of uh, <laughs> the collection of short stories and novellas that were published in 1999 and edited by Al Sarantonio. There were a ton of names attached to this, including Kings, uh, William Peter Blatty, uh, ever heard of him? Uh, Exorcist. <laughs> uh, Joyce Keller Oates, uh, Ramsey Campbell. Seems to be that he's a, a favorite amongst these collections. Um, Ramsey Campbell writes so many short stories. So yeah. Really? He's, I think he's in all of all of the collections. That's so he's, funny. He's very good at that. Um, well, why don't you take the quote that King says here about the, yeah. the road virus? 
I actually have the picture described in this story. How weird is that? My wife saw it and thought I'd like it or at least react to it. So she gave it to me as a birthday present, Christmas present. I can't remember. What I can remember is that none of my three kids liked it. I hung it in my office and they claimed the driver's eyes followed them as they crossed the room. As a very small boy, my son Owen was similarly freaked out by a picture of Jim Morrison. I like stories about pictures that change. And finally, I wrote this one about my picture. The only other time I can remember being inspired to write a story based on an actual picture was the house on Maple Street, based on a black and white drawing by Chris Van Alsberg. The sto- that story is in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I also wrote a novel about a picture that changes. It's called Rose Matter, and it's probably the... the You've said best read of my novels in this yeah. note, but it's least read, is what oh, he says, because okay. I remember being struck by that. And then he says, no movie either. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then uh, he goes, in that story, the road virus is named Norman. It is interesting. He takes a little dig at, I mean, he's not, I think he, I think he's very proud of Rose Matter, but it, it, it didn't sell very well at all. Yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, at all. Like it was still a huge seller, but uh, in it's terms of It's an acquired King, taste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love our, I love our episode on it. Didn't Dan, you, what's the, ri- wasn't our headline like a play on that, wasn't it? It was like, this is, Rose Matter is not the worst. Yeah. King, or something like that. Because there's been multiple lists that rank his books and multiple lists have Rose Matter is his worst book, which is um, not, not fair at all. No. Yeah, it's a very yeah. good book. Well, but yeah, yeah. This story is interesting. Um, and he does like a changing picture story because as I mentioned earlier, the sun dog in uh, Four Past Midnight and then obviously Rose Matter. Um, and then I feel like there's at least one other story. Wasn't there one in Nightmares and Dreamscapes? I could have sworn there. Well, he that... says, he does say there was one in there, the house on Maple Street uh, was inspired by a picture. I don't remember that story particularly though, but. Mm. Well, I, I, what I love about this is that it, it's just classic horror telling. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's mm. so cut and dry. It's hook, line, sinker of a story. I mean, I think that's why it's high here is because it's just easy to and, and digestible. I mean, this is probably the one I've read the fastest. Yeah. Um, out of all these stories, um, you know, Jen, as, as a as an art historian yourself, um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you what do you love about this story? Uh, oh God, I love it. It feels like Night Shift. You know, I had this as number two, two in yeah. my rankings. Yeah, I just love this one. It's one that I come back to when I want to get creeped out. You know, I love how fast, like it's literally fast paced. You know, because I love the haunting ending like oh i guess i'm going outside you know um there's a funniness to it but he's not afraid to go there like i love the image of this lady's head on the ironing board you know um and it's interesting to hear him i I always like when he kind of reflects on the the whole biz when he talks about like the seminar he went to he's like once they realized i didn't know where my ideas came from and i do sometimes scare myself um all they wanted to know is how to get an agent and it's also funny as i'm saying that I've listened to some of these stories so many times that I can hear Stephen King reading these words in my head. Like, Mike, that passage that you read earlier um, from the Gotham Hotel or the Gotham Cafe, I can hear King saying yeah. those words in his cadence. So, yeah, I just love this one. It's fun and yeah, I put, dirty and gross. I put this is so obviously King, LOL, like because he's uh-huh. he's doing all the things he gripes about, which is people asking him like where his stories come from and all that. Totally. Like, like, and you then, get your ideas. Yeah, and then like a horror writer who is numbingly successful, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, did you, have, have any of you seen the Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV adaptation of this? With yeah. Tom this is, that was what I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. I was literally, I'm literally looking it up right now. It's um, pretty fun. I mean, yeah. Tom Berenger is like sleepwalking his way through it but because it's Tom Berenger but it's a <laughs> it's it's a pretty fun adaptation and uh I think best suited for that kind of tv show you know mm-hmm. like that's what this story is yeah um I I personally don't love it because I think that it's like 
it's kind of forgettable ultimately, but I love so much of it. And I, the funny thing is I didn't really like the ending when I was reading it yesterday. Um, I was like, oh, and I read it a couple times and I'm like, this isn't landing for me. But then I don't know, I revisited it this morning and then I started laughing. Just the idea of like him seeing the photo and there's like blood in that in the seat. And he goes, oh, I'm going outside. I think like I'm that, going outside. <laughs> that line, I couldn't really wrap my brain around it yesterday. And now I'm finding it very funny. Like that's, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm caught up in this now. Like I'm seeing the future in this painting and I'm going outside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so hard to critique this one because it's so efficient, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really no fat here. And I, and I love the sort of zags it takes. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I love how mean it is too. I mean, cause it's, it's just, you know, he's fucking dead. He's, he, this guy's absolutely, and all he did was just buy a painting. And then I think that. <laughs> I, I think that yeah, kinda... he's not a flawed character, but he's also not really a likable character. No, but like, yeah. not that I need him to be, but it is interesting. Like usually King will give the guys he he, you know, gives a fate like this to some kind of unsavory quality. Yeah, and he, he doesn't stumbled... really do that here. You know? No, it reminds yeah. me. It reminds me of Drag Me to Hell because it's like, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. And, and she's Christine and that is certainly a more sympathetic character. But at the same time, you know, we see her moral complexities and everything. You don't really get that here. It's just kind of, hey, I stumbled and bought this painting. And, well, shit happens. Like, yeah. it kind of fucking sucks. Like, and if mm. anything, the OCD superstitious type in me is just like, like, that's where I like, you know, when I think about the ramifications or consequences of just even the smallest actions sometimes, like my mind starts losing it. And I'm like, well, what if it happens this? And I'll be like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And I was like, well, the world isn't fair. And these type of <laughs> stories prove that. Like, you know, there's no reason why he got stumbled into this. You know, there's people that, multi this woman just put on a fucking garage sale and she got her head chopped off. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's a little unfair, but um, Ashley, a, are oh, you, sorry. well, as someone, you know, who, who studies the paranormal, um, do you put a lot of uh, uh, stock into uh, the moving pictures? Do you, do you ever get creeped out by them? Uh, I've actually had a fear of uh, uh, moving pictures my whole life, thanks to the movie The Witches. Um, yes. Where, oh, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. First, yeah. the scariest part of that story for me is the little girl who gets trapped mm -hmm. in a painting, and her parents mm -hmm. just have to watch her grow old and die Ugh. inside the Just. painting and and it's always Ooh. stuck with me i hate moving paintings and actually recently when we did an investigation at the limp mansion there was a specific painting there of lillian limp that i swear on everything was different the night the first night we were there to the second night we were there and i wouldn't go near it and it happened, which is fine because it happened to be in the room where uh, Billy Limp killed himself and it already had a lot of bad energy and I didn't want to go in that room. So that's where the painting was. But and I have no proof because I didn't yeah. take a picture of it that night. I just saw it and I, you know, was like, oh, I, I believe that's Lillian Limp. And then the next night I was like, I feel like that's different. I feel like it's not the same painting I saw as the night before. And maybe it's just me being like more creeped out tonight. Like, I don't know what it was, but something about it was different. And this story, much like The Witches, um, has stuck in my craw my whole life. I've not forgotten this story. As soon as I started reading it, I was like, yup, I remember this. I remember everything that happens. It is so scary. And I wonder if it's sort of a, um, a heart-shaped box mm. situation where yeah. it's the fascination with the morbid in general that is what got him killed yeah mm. 
That's um, interesting. Especially, I, I and I don't know. I don't remember. Did he? Was he more obsessed with the painting after he found out the guy who painted it killed himself and burned all of his other paintings? Nah, it seemed he, like it was right away that yeah. that yeah. it kind of gripped him. Yeah. Yeah, that's when true. you say heart shaped box, are you talking about the Joe Hill novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where okay. he, I'm, he I'm only halfway through that. Well, he actively is trying to get items with morbid histories and like mm-hmm. supposed hauntings and, and this character kind of does the same. He collects like things that creep him out and even his aunt or was it his aunt that he visits? Yeah. Yeah. Even his yeah. aunt that he visits is like, Oh, that's so you of course you would have that. Uh-huh. And I wonder if that's kind of the you know, he didn't do anything wrong. He's not a bad guy, but just like that, that urge to collect all of those things, like to surround yeah. yourself with those dark Play with things. The bull, you get the horns. Exactly. Well, and it's like, eventually you might get possessed or eventually well, you might get murdered by a painting. This isn't going to be the last time we talk about this type of theme. Uh, that's true. It's certainly not the last time we talk about moving pictures yeah. as well. Last um, thing I'll say about this story is I feel I know he he wrote this before the accident, but it does have a little bit of extra weight if you look at it through the lens of the accident. Just the idea of somebody in a car sort of chasing you down. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah. It, it it I wonder how this story would look if he had written it after the accident. If it would have mm-hmm. more existential weight to it. Um, I yeah. like the version as is. I don't know if I need that, but you know, I think about riding the bullet. You know, which is another uh, story about uh, you know men in cars and it is and that one was written after the accident and you can see the existential weight and the difference between those two stories yeah didn't you mm-hmm. kind of laugh at like the idea that this like haunting image is just a guy in a fucking and it's basically just a greaser in a convertible <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's I know, it like the cannibal tea yeah. i was which is i love and i just love the idea of like subtly you can just start seeing more slowly 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 you know like I just, this terrible thing has become aware of you now. You know? Yeah, like like later on, certainly, like when it's moving, when, when you're definitely able to prove that it's moving, I'd be like, all right, this is kind of creepy. But if I just like saw this guy, like, you know, in a convertible smiling and he kind of has like vampire teeth, I'd be like, this fucking painting sucks. Like, I'd, Yeah, it's, it's just not like, a scary it's, concept. No. Yeah. It's so and that's why you'd survive. I would. I'd be like. I'd be like. I don't want anything here. And um, go home yeah. and buy dinner yeah. and go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> go see your no, you can't have my driver's license number. Yeah. No, I. I just uh, need a little bit more. But um, anything else? Mm-mm. No, this story's pretty pretty cut and dry. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's uh, it's lean mean, and I like it. Which is interesting um, that we had so much more to say about the stories lower on our list than these sort of middle stories. Because yeah. the middle stories are like I liked them. Right, yeah. And that's, that's a how review. <laughs> yeah. They do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. 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 They speed through. A little bit like mm-hmm. uh, a ride I like to call the bullet. Um, <laughs> number four. So we have a whole episode I know. on riding the bullet and the plant. Uh, mm-hmm. Jen, you were on that. Yep. Mike, you weren't on that. I wasn't. Um, and Ashley, you weren't. So I feel like uh, Jen and I have talked extensively about riding the bullet already. So mm-hmm. we'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this one. But first, let's read the quote. Yeah, Ashley, go for the quote uh, for writing the book. What King said, I think I've said almost everything that needs to be said about this story in the introduction. It's essentially my telling of a tale you can hear in almost any small town. And like the earlier story of mine, The Woman in the Room in Night Shift, it's an attempt to talk about how my own mother's approaching death made me feel. There comes a time in most lives when we must face the deaths of our loved ones as an actual reality. 
and, by proxy, the fact of our own approaching death. This is probably the single great subject of horror fiction, our need to cope with a mystery that can only be understood, oh, sorry, that can be understood only with the aid of a hopeful imagination. So what did you like about this one, Ashley? Um, I liked, I loved George Staub mm-hmm. as a character. I, it was very, um, and I can't think of the character's name, Pet Cemetery. Um, oh, oh uh, Pascal? Victor Pascal. Pascal. Yes, Pascal. Yeah. It was MVP. very Pascal to oh. me. Yeah, mm. where he was gross and creepy and dirty, but like, I don't know, I liked him. Like, I didn't, I don't know, obviously, if I was in this car, I'd be very scared of him. But, like, mm. as someone who's just kind of reading the story, I, I just, I really liked George Stubb. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, the idea of the, you know, the theme that I talked about um, last week of the through theme in all these stories of being trapped. And, like, you can look at this as, like, he was trapped in a car, but more mm-hmm. importantly, he was trapped in a decision. The decision to, um, you know, sacrifice his own life for the life of his mother. But also, like, he had valid points. Like, she has lived a life. I haven't got a chance to live a life. Like, shouldn't that mean that I I deserve it more? I deserve to live more than she does? And I, I just think that that's a really terrifying decision to be trapped in um and i think he did a really good job of um making that decision scary um Mm -hmm. but also my favorite thing about this story though is i love that the author recognized or the the character recognized that the experience he had is probably what gave him the last years with his mother um because Mm -hmm. he may not have been so dedicated to her if that hadn't happened I mean, everyone has been in that situation where we lose a parent or a grandparent and we immediately think, like, I should have talked to them more. I should have asked them more questions about their life. Like, now I I, want to know all this stuff about them. I want to, like, have all these experiences with them and they're gone. And that lasts a while. Like, you really do become closer with the people in your life after you lose someone because you realize the importance of that. But eventually your life has to happen and you drift further away from that. And then it another person dies. And you're like, I wish I had asked them more questions. I wish I had spent more mm. time with them. And that's just a part of life for every single person. And the fact that he, like, makes sure to say, like, it, it, he never says, like, I'm grateful to, for this experience. But he does acknowledge that, like, he wouldn't have had the years that he had with his mother if he hadn't had this experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... One of the things I love about this story is just what the road provides for King to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I love a good road trip movie. Uh, Kingpin, great movie. Um, <laughs> Tommy Boy, great movie. Um, Little Miss but, Sunshine. Uh, it's, it's just such an easy, yeah, it's just such an easy, um, you know, vessel to tell a story on. And he really just kind of owns it. And what I was taken by with this story was just like King just kind of being able to appreciate um, the countryside. I mean, it, it sounds so stupid and, and, you know, especially coming after all the thematic way you're just discussing in here. But the thing that I remember most about this story is uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like um, uh, almost like Washington Irving, just the ways that you kind of use the, 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 the terrain, the surroundings 
to kind of just draw you in. And 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 some of the the passages in here are just fucking gorgeous. Like um, on page four fourteen, uh, I breasted a steep hill and stepped it back into the moonlight again at the top. The trees were gone on my right, replaced by a small country graveyard. The stones gleamed in the pale light. Something small and black was crouched beside one of them, watching me. I took a step closer, curious. The black thing moved and became a woodchuck. It spared me a single reproachful red-eyed glance and was gone into the high grass. All at once, I became aware that I was very tired, in fact, close to exhausted. I had been running on pure adrenaline since Mrs. McCurdy had called the five hours before, but now that was gone. That was the bad part. The good part was that useless sense of frantic urgency left me, at least for the time being. Um, and then he later talks about how, uh, yeah, God, this is just such gorgeous stuff. Like, um, a ground mist fine and glowing was rising out of the grass. The trees surrounding the cemetery on three sides rustled in the rising breeze from beyond the graveyard came the sound of running water and the occasional plunk plunk of a frog. The place is beautiful and oddly soothing, like a picture in a book of romantic poems. Like, man, he's just owning it. And like, it's kind of crazy to think like so. This was written right after the accident, right? You know, or yeah. was it I mean, around Bullet, the same time? I can't remember. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Bullet was the name of the dog of the man who hit him. Yeah, um, who the dog who distracted him when um, you know he hit King. So it's definitely a reaction to that, and it was one of the first things he did after the accident. I mean, that, this in Dreamcatcher, and I think the idea for writing the bullet might have already been in his head. I feel like I read him saying that somewhere, but. The story itself, I think, is very much about, um, you know, meeting mortality. Well, it's, a, um, it's, it's beautiful. I, I think it's yeah. really well done. And it's one of those things where you just like still got it, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. anything else you want to say about writing the bullet? Because, again, we do have that have a full question. episode. Yeah. Um, when he finds the button under his mother's bed after she does pass... All right, good, good, yeah. Are we to believe that she went on her own ride with George Staub before dying... Oh, that's th- this like is like everyone yeah. takes a ride. Um, Interesting. Who do you think she would choose? Would she choose herself or her son? I think she would choose herself. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, that decision. Essentially, it, it's not that it meant nothing, but, you know, he does choose himself and then his mother doesn't die. Mm-hmm. So you're left mm-hmm. with I know we haven't talked about it yet, but you're left with a little bit of like the man in the black suit where it's like, OK, yeah. well, so. I know I experienced it because I have the button. Right. But were the consequences real? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, he didn't say she'll die right away. Yeah. He never right. said, like, choose your life or your mother's. Like, you'll get there and she'll, you know, be dead immediately. Um, mm-hmm. Just that she'd die, which we yeah. all will. So I just thought that was interesting that like he lost the button and then he didn't find it until it was under her bed. And I was left with the question, did she also take a ride? It's the uh, the old inception ending with the, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> the, the spinning spinner, top, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did his choice have consequences really in the end? Or, or was it just a way of presenting this choice and this fact of life to him yeah. in a way that he can like pinpoint that pinpoint this understanding of it by a pin and i love the the line where he's like no this is my pin now throwing away mm-hmm. what's the wrong thing like i need to hold on to this experience yeah which ultimately it, it right yeah. yeah because we're all gonna die you know and i think that's in the next story we're gonna talk about too which i think is a really interesting theme 
um, kind of through line in this is that we are all going to die, but maybe not today. Yeah. But but if you were to die today. Right. Yeah. I think it's like encountering. We all have that moment when death becomes real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what what these stories are about. Yeah. Right. It's like it's like a, a totem. Almost yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like the it's not that she died that day. It's that he finally understood like the death is that he is going to live forever. This idea that his mother is never going to pass away. Yeah. You know? And that's yeah. what the death really is. Yeah. Well, speaking of death, <laughs> um, he's the the or it's the center of this. The, our next story. Number three, the man in the black suit. The man in the black suit. <laughs> this one dates back to October 31st, 1994. <gasps> uh, October 31st, <laughs> I believe that's Halloween. Um, this was in uh, the issue of the New Yorker, so I imagine that issue probably had some spooky stuff on it. Maybe some spooky drawings from other <laughs> New York artists. This is a New Yorker Halloween thing, too. You know? <laughs> oh, it absolutely is. Uh, well, Jen, why don't you read uh, what King said about this story? All right. My favorite Nathaniel Hawthorne story is Young Goodman Brown. I think it's one of the 10 best stories ever written by an American. The Man in the Black Suit is my homage to it. As for the particulars, I was talking with a friend of mine one day, and he happened to mention that his grandpa believed, truly believed, that he had seen the devil in the woods back around the turn of the 20th century. Grandpa said the devil came walking out of the woods and started talking to him just like a natural man. While Grandpa was chinning with him, he realized that the man from the woods had burning red eyes and smelled like sulfur. My friend's grandpa became convinced that the devil would kill him if he realized grandpa had caught on, so he did his best to make normal conversation until he could eventually get away. My story grew from my friend's story. Writing it was no fun, but I went on with it anyway. Sometimes stories cry out to be told in such loud voices that you write them just to shut them up. Oh, I love that. The th I thought the finished product a rather humdrum folktale told in pedestrian language. Certainly miles from the Hawthorne story I liked so much. When the New Yorker asked to publish it, I was shocked. When it won first prize in the O. Henry Best Short Story Competition for 1996, I was convinced someone had made a mistake. <laughs> that did not <laughs> keep me from accepting the award, however. Reader response was generally positive, too. The story is proof that writers are often the worst judges of what they have written. Here's a thought I had while reading this, um, and especially this ties in with the Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's something that was, came to mind when we were reading Ghost Story our Dance Macabre book episode uh, last month because uh, he kind of gets into uh, some Hawthorne-esque stories. Does horror get scarier the further back you go into the past? When you're reading stories that take place like, you know, 17th century, 16th century, 19th century, is there an argument to be had that it's scarier than it is it's set today? I mean, I, I can see the sense that there's less stuff. So there's less things that could have potentially caused whatever the haunting is you know because like nowadays you can blame so much on you know environmental yeah. stuff or or uh technology or lights and all that other stuff and so there is something creepy about like when there was you know nothing but the moon in the sky and you're deep alone in the woods and there's you know genuinely nothing else there that whatever horrors are there are a lot more real you know um, what scares me about this story though? And I think this is, it's kind of the Robert Eggers effect, right? Like, uh, yeah. like the witch, yeah. uh, which the, the witch is one of my favorite horror movies of the last, you know, however many years, because it's a movie that it's a movie in which the devil is real. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and those are, uh, you know, cause I don't have, like, I have a, a lot of religious, um, experience in my background and, and currently, and I'm, and so 
I don't, I've never seen a ghost. I've never had an experience with a ghost. Any supernatural thing that I've had happen in my life, I would classify as demonic. I've had two experiences that I would say I've encountered demons. Um, and I don't know, I wouldn't say I firmly believe that that's what happened, but it's my only answer. And so a story like this scares the pants off me because it is very much just like, this isn't a ghost, this was the devil, and it was a man with burning red eyes, and he told me that my mom was dead, and my dad was a pedophile, and um, and all this other shit, and it's like, and he, you know, was this malevolent, tactile presence that was right in front of me, and consumed a fish in front of me, and touched me, and all this stuff, and that is so deeply scary to me. Like, the idea of, of a possessed person and that's why we talked about this on our World of Horror episode when King talks about John Wayne Gacy and uh, and how the only people who will ever see the evil that possessed him are the people he killed because they were mm. the ones who saw his eyes like as mm-hmm. he was doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's the idea that the evil was surfaced in those moments. And then when you watch interviews with John Wayne Gacy, you know, in prison – he seems like a very normal guy, and uh, we you, you don't see the evil that exists in his eyes. And I think that, to me, is uh, very, very deeply chilling, and I think that speaks to this story in some ways as well, like that there is a demonic presence. Um, and, you know, and that speaks to 1408, too, where it's very firmly not a ghost story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. I had a moment when I was younger that always makes me think of this story where I was, I, I had my driver's license, so I had to be 16 or 17, and I was driving. I lived in the of nowhere in a town called walnut hill it took me like 20 (laughs) minutes to get to civilization and i remember one time it was summer it was hot and i was driving into town and i passed a guy who was wearing a suit and he had like a suitcase and i remember seeing him from afar and driving up and being like what the fuck is this guy doing like no one even owns a suit around here like what is this guy doing and i thought maybe his car broke down and like as i got closer to him he stopped And just looked at my car and like looked me right in the eyes as I passed him. And then I could see him in my rearview mirror. He watched me. He just stopped walking and watched my car until it was gone. And I don't know what happened to him. And I always, and I don't know if it's because, I was probably because of this story. My whole life I was like, that was the devil. Like I saw, like what Mm. the hell was it that I saw? And then I started the podcast And years into the podcast, I had a uh, listener write in who now lives in my hometown. And she told a story about a man in a suit who came in on a hot summer day to the pharmacy she was working Uh. at (laughs) and how he his breath smelled really bad and he had this weird smile on his face. And in my town, like, it's not like everyone knows everyone, but you know, you recognize pretty much everyone. She was like, Mm -hmm. I had never seen him before and I never saw him since. And I never want to see him again. And she was like, I know like the, the likelihood of that being the same man you saw all those years ago is very slim. But when you told that story on the podcast, I could not stop thinking about this man that's fascinating it's so fascinating and so the man in the black suit is like a it's almost like a uh an archetype it's like a scarecrow uh clown Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. and i think the man in the black suit is another one of those it's almost like a slender man type character yeah oh absolutely everyone has this sort of fear of that type of person and however you picture him and whatever he does to you but yeah i've had my own man in the black suit and i don't want to meet him no 
the folklorish figure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jen, I feel like you're a little cold on this one. Uh, maybe a little scared <laughs> of the man in black suit. Uh, Was it yeah, the shark mouth? Bit, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my neighbors went fishing yesterday and they had this big fish. Fish are kind of gross. Fish are gross um, for sure. But this this fish, fish was delicious. We ate it last night. Um, but yeah, I, I do really like this story. And that's kind of, I was thinking about this. Like, there's really only one story in the collection that I don't like. Like, it when my ranking, a lot of it was just like, which one do I like more? more? And this one just kind of, I think I, because I've listened to some of the other ones so many times, I just have this emotional attachment to it. But I love this story. I think it's really haunting. I also think when I was talking about the death of Jack Hamilton, I kind of put this in the same category as that. Like, it's like this horror in the daylight, but like in the Southern, like the Southern horrific world that sometimes I just am not really that into. I I think it might reveal a little bias on my part being a Southerner, or maybe like, I don't want people to think that all Southerners are a certain way. I don't know. So sometimes that is off-putting. Sometimes I'm really, really into it and sometimes not. And I think that's what gets me a little bit distanced from this one. But the things that I love about it, like I love the idea of a bee sting killing Mm -hmm. his brother and that this is just something he's living with. Like the story is not about his brother's death, but that just pervades the whole thing. I like the idea that the the devil's just fucking with him. Yeah. Like this is the worst thing I can tell you. And this is what I'm going to tell you. Um, And I I was really kind of, every time I read this, I think I draw a little more into the story of the mom, like beating that woman who suggested that her son died of a bee sting and like never wanting to come back to church again. I just think that's such a, a brief, but really fascinating response to grief, you know, and you could look at this whole story as a response to grief, which I think is really interesting. Um, so I do think it's great. It just like Ashley, like you said earlier, other ones just kind of beat it out. Yeah. I also, yeah. you know, I kind of got a real Pennywise vibe yeah. from the man yeah. in the black suit in that, especially when he does go home and his mom's fine. Yeah. Almost in like a, you'll taste better if you're scared mm-hmm. type uh, yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, well, why, if he was really the devil, shouldn't his mom be dead? Like mm-hmm. he should have right. gone home well, to find his mom dead, but it really like was just trying to fuck him up, basically. Psychologically. The devil is the devil's also a liar. Like yeah. that's, that's sort True. of like in He's Christian circles. Yeah. Yeah, that's very much sort of the thing is like the devil lies, the devil lies, the devil he lies. lies. Demons to you lie. About... When they're in your head, they're lying. Yeah. To you. Devil's what devil's you my can best be friend. what you can have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I mean Satan even is my motor. Well, even the description of him, which is terrifying. It yeah. does feel like a scene out of it. I mean, just I'm gonna read it real quick. Yeah. Um. I'm, well, I'm gonna read one line and then I'll jump over. So it's like, um, <laughs> as I sat there trembling on the edge of panic or simply bolting to my feet and then bolting anywhere, there came a rapport from behind me. It was as sharp and premonitory as a pistol shot, but I knew it wasn't a pistol shot. It was someone clapping his hands, one single clap, and then you jump ahead, and this is so scary. Um. <laughs> At that moment, hauling in a big one was about the last thing on my mind, however, and when the line snapped and the fish fell back into the stream, I barely noticed. I looked over my shoulder to see who had clapped. A man was standing above me at the edge of the trees. His face was very long and pale. Oh, God. And his, <laughs> uh, his black hair was combed 
tight against his skull and parted with rigorous care on the left side of his narrow head. He was very tall. He was wearing a black three-piece suit, and I knew right away that he was not a human being because his eyes were the orangey red of flames in a wood stove. I don't just mean the irises because he had no irises and no pupils and certainly no whites. His eyes were completely orange, an orange that shifted and flickered. And it was really too late. It's really too late not to say exactly what I mean, isn't it? He was on fire inside and his eyes were like little Isinglass portholes you sometimes see in stove doors. I mean, if we're looking at the whole book as a whole, there are a lot of recurring elements just in this in this story alone with a lot of the stuff. I mean, the devil itself, you, you know, we just talked about George Staub. The sort of teasing of the mother being dead is very similar to what the man in black does here. Yeah. Um, that description of the, the 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 importance of the fire in the eyes ties into another story we're going to be discussing soon, 1408, and just the light of it all and the evil of that light. Um, and so I, it's kind of interesting how to see a lot of the tapestries that are recurring in this in the short story collection. Like it, it's very complex. More I'm thinking about it in hindsight, and just like how everything is weaved in, you know, thematically, visually, and and narratively. Um, and it's kind of wild that it there was no intent for that. Yeah. You know, as we discussed earlier, it was just him kind of taking these stories and shuffling them together. It's like, it's almost like Ka itself uh, ah, made this, uh, made this story <laughs> together. Um, yeah. I love the story. I think I, and I, and I was saying, I, I, I do think there's something about folklore or the idea of folklore, especially when you're seeing it in the, in the lens of this being an old school story that really gets at me. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't know. Loved it. It reminds me of this of one of the scariest sections of the ghost story, which we talk about in that episode. So it really does Go seem ahead. like it could be a scene from it, like yeah. in the past, yeah. like mm-hmm. one of his, you know, twenty seven, like years. one of the cycles. Yeah, one of his cycles yeah. where he came well, maybe, back and just terrorized this child. Maybe the man maybe in black will pop dairy. up and work in the dairy. Yeah. We'll see <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, if he's played by a scars guard, sign me up. Well, he you would know. be a good. Yeah, I could see a scars. Oh, guard he would. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, everything's eventual, uh, which is uh, <laughs> That's the second good. story that nice. we have here. Um, this one dates back to October, November 1997 issue of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, and Randall, you wanted to just uh, read what King said about it? Yeah. One day out of nowhere, I had a clear image of a young man pouring change into a sewer grating outside of the small suburban house in which he lived. I had nothing else, but the image was so clear and so disturbingly odd that I had to write a story about it. It came out smoothly and without a single hesitation, supporting my idea that stories are artifacts, not really made up things or made things which we create and can take credit for, but pre-existing objects which we dig up. So the first thing on my mind with this story is um, it's basically severance. I wrote that <laughs> like, down too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, he's, and King's a huge fan of severance. I, I wonder if King watching it was just like, yeah, it looks like they've been reading my uh, my short story. Uh, Everything's eventual. <laughs> he was a big fan of Severance. I yeah. actually, and that was um, that was the one thing that I I'm trying to say this without any Severance spoilers, but um, that was the one thing. This was the story that I felt could be a novel um, mm-hmm. in and of itself because when it ended, I wanted to see who sent him that letter, how. Can he get out of this? Is there a way out of this? Like in Severance, just sort of like the decision he makes to try and get out of it or stay in it. And also, 
I want to see what the process is. I want to see like what the powers at be do when he escapes them or if he escapes them. So that was the only mm-hmm. thing that I was let down with the story is that when it ended, I was like, no, like that was the end of the story. Like I just, I, I wanted it to keep going. I wanted to see if there was a possibility he could get out of this trapped situation yeah. he was well, in. Yeah. And I think though, I think, the difficulty and the ambiguity of whether or not he can escape it is in some ways can it contributes to i think the overall message yeah. which mm-hmm. what yeah. i really took from this uh, this story is incredible and um i mean this is a story about a guy who basically uh is young underemployed uh kind of a loser uh, is bullied lives with his mom and he's given a job opportunity that um taps into what his like actual talents are which you know in this case is his ability to write weird symbols that make people kill themselves which is pretty interesting and um but he but basically instead of having this talent nurtured and um and uh, uh cultivated and he's able to sort of you know execute it in a way that enriches him and enriches more people around him he is recruited by a major corporation Mm -hmm. to uh send emails all day and uh and not know what havoc he is wreaking but and they they give him just an and they say this in story it's brilliant it's like they give him just enough money so that he can't have any savings and then they give him all the stuff he wants you know so he can Mm -hmm. get a house and he can fill it with stuff but he can't actually have any assets of his own or any money of his own because that would necessitate he would leave and this is very much a story about the ways in which um the elite you know ruling class of america like uh utilize low-class people with a lot of talent to do their dirty work you know Mm -hmm. and um it's 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 incredibly powerful in that depiction, I think. And just, I think the note, and this is too, like when people started, email became a big part of people's jobs. And now we literally have a phrase that has kind of permeated culture, which is fake email job, which I had one of those once upon a time. And I think a lot of people do. We have fake email jobs. And, uh, and we send emails all day. And so that, but what I love about this story is that his emails literally kill people. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that speaks to the banal nature of how, of capitalism, right? And just basically totally. like the the kind of horrible conditions that um, the corporate structures that run this country like wreak on a daily basis in terms of marginalizing poor people uh, and people of color and uh, impacting the environment in negative ways, basically making the world a worse and worse place with every email that gets sent. And we, we, and then, and it's also just about how we're all complicit in capitalism and, and uh, it's incredibly hard to get away from it because, you know, he says, I have a good job. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a good job now and no reason to feel glum because he knows what it's like to be poor and he knows what it's Mm -hmm. like to be a loser. Mm -hmm. And I get it, man. Like I've, I've been under employed of my life and i was grateful to have fake email jobs when i was younger because it you know it was stability and all you want people are so desperate for stability in this country Mm -hmm. that they're very useful uh automatons right for um the corporate structures to use they can give you benefits they can give you stuff to put in your house but uh but they don't want you to have too much power they don't want you to have too much money of your own because then you'll leave and they can't use you and so um and yeah so anyways i think that 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 kind of sense of being trapped in in um 
and 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 I love it's kind of this combination of this fantastic you know supernatural sci-fi kind of premise with the drudgeries of labor. Yes, uh, you know is such a a wonderful story, and it's like that radical. It's the radical politics of King that I miss uh, that <laughs> yeah. we don't get as much these days from him. And uh, so I don't know. I I was very smitten with this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's very prescient, especially you know seeing how this was uh, you know late nineties. So 97 is pretty much when the internet starts becoming a little bit more ubiquitous in a way. Um, I feel like a lot, a lot, most of the Americans had it at that point. You know, 97 is like right when you're starting to get into like AOL 2.7 <laughs> territory. And so, you know, more people are starting to get it in their homes. Personal computers are now being upgraded. For, so for him to write this at that point, it's just, how, you know, real great foresight here um because mm. this speaks volumes today um yeah and, and especially at a time when you know when you think about dicky uh getting the you know the blinds removed right and seeing uh-huh. what happens and then still feeling powerless for it you know i mean ultimately this there's a silver lining to this and be like oh we could do something about it and like you know in reality for us we can't you know, yeah. there's, you, you could, you, you you know, look at the culture writers of this world. Like they spend their, they've lost their fucking minds trying to offer solutions that they know themselves aren't going to do anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's what Twitter has become also is that you just keep, you just keep sending these, these, you know, these grievances knowing that, it, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you retweet something. It doesn't matter how many times you donate to some sort of thing. The monsters. The larger, yeah, it's essentially the larger, the larger structures exist, and Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is what. Not to get crazy, it's just like this is what we're told all the time: is that it's on us, it's on us, it's yeah. on us, it's on us, it's our bootstraps, it's us. And yep. if you oh, if you want to stop uh, uh, climate change, stop using hairspray. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or but vote. Then, just uh, vote. Yeah, just yeah. vote. Like, but meanwhile, like they'll support all the corporations that actually pollute the earth. Yeah. This is this is just how this country is run, and we're so deep in it, it's impossible it's to think of run. it ever changing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's why, like, that's why the ending I think is so great because it's like. He's he can kill his boss, right? Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but can he topple the the trans yeah, that's corporation? The thing. Or whatever? He can kill his, his boss. boss. Has a boss. Yeah, yeah. But then who's gonna take advantage of him next? Like, where does he yeah. go from mm-hmm. here? Yeah. yeah. He's got no. He's got no escape hatch. Mm-hmm. You know. And and you right. know. And the nice thing is, uh, I I know that this character resurfaces. He in does. The King universe. He does. But I don't remember how. So I'm actually excited to because I had not so, read this story. So, all right. So that I answers one of my questions. Before. Let's just let, wait until we get to that. Yeah. And yeah. Let's. So not is this the, yeah. the other one that ties into Dark Tower? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 But this is such. This is a way more standalone story. I feel like. I agree. Because yeah. I know a lot of like t- tower heads that don't know this is a dark tower adjacent story because it's it's its own thing and it exists in its own world too and it's so fucking readable like I just yeah. love yeah. I get I swept this out away city, by yeah. this story exactly and Justin Long reads this oh and, awesome. Um, Perfect. Like he's just his like little dinkyisms. It's just so great. I don't always love Justin Long, but I love him in the story. This would be yeah. like Jeepers Creepers era. <laughs> Justin Long. It, yes. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of one of my favorite sections in um, The Shining is when they're walking through the the pantry and he's just like naming all of the mm-hmm. food. And there's something that's just so like readable about his like listing of all the stuff he can get, you know, mm-hmm. but it's it's fun too. And I also love it. And it's one of the criticisms I had of the new Black Phone movie is I love that this entire story takes place within Dinky's world yeah. and with his vantage point. Like we yep. never see the larger question 
corporation. And I want to know, like, Ashley, I agree. I want to know everything about it. But I also kind of love that we don't, you know, because it's just like this little window. And it's such a good um, depiction, I think, about how somebody who's a good person could really easily be swayed into this and like just caught up in it. And you don't realize like, oh, I've killed 200 people. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is that's the thing is we're. We're, we're so unstable as a country that people mm. just want stability and if, they'll take whatever job they can get, you know? Right. And that's, right. we're desperate for work, you know? And it's like that, um, and that's like what I think is so unfortunate is we all end up having to do the bidding of evil people, yeah. you know? I mean, it's like, and that's what, I always go back to this because I thought it was such a smart point, but that's what Lara kind of presented when we talked about Billy Summers mm-hmm. is this notion of how we all end up kind of working for the powers that are kind of hurting the country and how hard it is to, free ourselves from that um and how because that is that is like post-capitalism right and we're all contributing to the decline and uh it's a horrible place to live in you know and i think that's like what this captures through this you know this kind of goofball character who like anyone is just trying to survive Mm -hmm. and a lot of Mm -hmm. times to survive you have to contribute to things that uh you know that make things that contribute to the decline. And it's just, yeah. it's very sad. And this story made me like tremendously sad yeah. because I think yeah. it speak it's things have only gotten so much worse since it was first written. And, uh, and yeah, and that, I think it's the reason I like severance too, is severance touches on a lot of those themes. Well, the so. good news is that it's all going to get worse. So, um, <laughs> it's, right. it's only going to get, you know, sorry for there's no, there's no silver lining to the reality of all this. Uh, anyway, are we okay to check into number one? Yeah. Let's do 1408. Yeah. So this one dates back to the Blood and Smoke audiobook from 1999. Uh, it also kind of ties into on writing, and here's why. Here's what King said. As well as the ever-popular premature burial, every writer of shock suspense tales should write at least one story about the ghostly room at the end. This is my version of that story. The only unusual thing about it is that I never intended to finish it. I wrote the first three or four pages as part of an appendix for my on-writing book, wanting to show readers how a story evolves from the first draft to second. Most of all, I wanted to provide concrete examples of the principles I'd been blathering about in the text, but something nice happened. The story seduced me, and I ended up writing all of it. I think that what scares us varies wildly from one individual to the next. I've never been able to understand why Peruvian boomslangs give some some people the creeps, for example. But this story scared me while I was working on it. It originally appeared as part of an audio compilation called Blood and Smoke. I just said that, Stephen. And the audio scared me (laughs) even more. Scared the hell out of me. But hotel rooms are naturally creepy places. And don't you think? I mean, how many people slept in that bed before you? How many of them were sick? How many were losing their minds? How many were perhaps thinking about reading a few final verses from the Bible in the drawer of the nightstand before them, uh, beside them, and then hanging themselves in the closet beside the TV? In any case, let's check in, shall we? Here's your key. And you might take time to notice what those four innocent numbers add up to. It's just down the hall. They add up to 13. Um, so I, know, we, I was like, I was like, it's 19, right? I was like, I can't get any I thought it was going to be 19. To 19 but. Yeah. I, we all had this at number one. No surprise. This is classic night shift material. Um, I honestly feel like it's a, it's a story that mentally had been collecting dust and cobwebs in King's head since The Shining. I want to say there's an argument that he had that this is the scariest story he's written to date. I, 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 I was so shaken and, and, and put in a place after this story was read. And I think it's the claustrophobia. I think it's the way that it, it punches in and punches out. I think it's the imagery at hand that are so surreal and so, but yet so 
um, as he says, there's a, there's a ubiquity to the scares in this. And I don't know, this one really rattled me. And, yeah. and it's mm. funny because I've seen 1408, the movie, countless times. It's on fucking Pluto TV every day. And I'm excited to get to it too, but I love the simplicity of it. And this one just scared me. Like, I mean, Sammy had woken up just as I finished it and I just was in a daze. I just couldn't <laughs> stop thinking about some of the scares in this. Um, am I alone in saying that it, it might be one of his scariest stories or am I, is that too hyperbole? No, I mean, it, hyperbole? it was uh, my favorite in ninth grade and it's still my favorite of this collection and probably one of my favorite short stories he's ever written. It scares the shit out of me. And like you said, there's so many different scares in it. There's the claustrophobia, obviously, um, of being trapped in this room. There's also the the idea of being not in control of your own body and the things that you're saying, like the fact that he starts mm -hmm. just saying things that don't make sense. Um, mm -hmm. That's terrifying. And that's something that you can either put, um, you could put dementia into the fact that you have completely lost control of what you can experience. Um, the fact that you can't trust what you're seeing is real mm -hmm. that's fucking scary there's so many different things that are scary about it and i think it's one of the most successful you know haunted stories because it, it checks off the boxes for a good haunted story one you have a really good um narrator you have mike inslin yeah. who's mm -hmm. I would Great. read anything Mike Inslin wrote. He's such mm -hmm. a yep. fun guy. He's, he's so cynical. I love him. You also have him going into this haunted situation for a reason. There is a reason. And there's also a reason for him to um, maybe not leave when he should. So that's mm -hmm. a lot of problems with haunted house stories. It's like Amityville did it already in 1978 or 79, where it's like, we put all our money into this house. We can't just leave. Okay, valid. But so many people have done that. It's so much more satisfying when you put someone in a situation where it's like, why not just fucking leave? Like, why why even mm -hmm. do this? So when you give them a reason to be there, a reason to continue on when maybe they shouldn't. Like, as soon as he noticed the door was crooked, like most people, you know, you'd be like, run, get uh -huh. out of there. Like, what are you doing? Uh -huh. And the fact that he has the reason to go in he has the reason to almost like prove it them wrong that this place is haunted it's just it checks off all the great boxes of a haunted house story and it then does. on top of it you have to wrestle with the fact that like it's not just a haunted house it's not like yeah what the fuck happened in this room like it can't just be that the numbers add up to 13 like you start thinking like did, did evo shandor build this building <laughs> i know like how uh, what is our deco what, yeah what nice. is going on yeah. with this room it's terrifying yeah well that that, that it, lack of explanation is what makes it work it's yeah. like 100 for we get all the story right up front mm -hmm. like we learn who this guy is the hotel manager says don't do it uh, and we get a little bit of like a little bit of lore, just history, basically. Mm -hmm. And then when we're in the room, there's no story and we don't need it. And like that to me is what makes it so strong. Yeah. There's no ghost child who has a backstory. Yeah. There's no reason for this to be happening. And there's no tropes that are easily uh, ca uh, categorized or, or contextualized within the context of this room. It is simply a, a terrifying room where things happen to one guy. And um and I love that. I don't. I love that there's no arc in 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 mm -hmm. his uh, in his journey within the room. He goes in and is assaulted with with horrors. 
for however many minutes and then leaves and like waste that, no time they waste really no time oh like, yeah i just feel like and this is where i'm excited to revisit the movie because i'm sure i don't remember much about it i've only seen it once i'm sure that they impose some kind of narrative structure onto him being they do. in the room they yeah do. which yeah. i think you like i mean in screenwriting school or whatever you yeah. have you learn that you have to do that and the thing is i think if there was perhaps a more visionary director they they wouldn't have had to do that they could have uh tried to just be atmospheric with it and exist within the horror but the thing is there's a formlessness to the horror which is what speaks to me um there's yeah. no arc to the horror it is it is basically just scary shit starts happening like i love the mm. description it was never human he told the yeah. incoming waves in a choke halting voice ghosts at least ghosts were once human the thing in the wall though that thing it reminds yep. me of what we discussed and i think this is one of the scare the biggest scares for you with the shining was that that thing in the pipe right yep mm. that was the scariest thing you just don't know me, yeah. and it's just it's just that that force that presence and the the thing that the thing that i love about this is that um it actually ties in with i, I texted you this randall because you're i know you're a big fan is that um there's a video game silent hill the room oh yeah i've never played and, that one. Oh, God, i love the silent it's hill it's so though. fucking scary and it's so it's absolutely indebted to the story because the thing i love about that is that it uh takes away your safety net because in in those survival horror games the safe room is always the room that that makes that calms you they even have music that calms you the most about it it's just this like pleasant dreamy music that gives you a sense to kind of breathe and breathe out what this the genius about that a game is that when you the, your safe room is your apartment in which you start at and as you go and continue things change in 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 the in the room so what what once was a safe haven all of a sudden you start noticing oh there's this weird mold on the wall and then that mold becomes these like faces and then that those faces become this like cadre of like weird sort of children like faces that are crying and, and weeping and then you notice outside your window that there was a person that the, there was a, the buses that used to come by, but now there's nothing that's there. And then all of a sudden you start knowing, n- noticing that the, the hallway is shorter than it was before. But then you come back and you leave one room, you come out and then the hallway is even longer. That sort of, there's no rhyme or reason for what's happening, but it's happening and it's playing with your reality. And you don't know what's playing with your reality. Is it some sort of thing that's coming out and doing these things? Or is it just the quantum physics of this reality that's changing around you? You don't know. And to mm-hmm. me, that lack of control is, is so disturbing and so universally human in its scare that for me, I, I think that's what ultimately got me the most out of this story. It's just like, is, is being in that moment. Like I, I wanted to be I, I loved, I was riveted by these pages and yet I also wanted to get, be done with it as soon as possible. I was like, yeah. I got to mm-hmm. get out of here. I want to get out of this fucking room. And and it's hard to convey that. And he does it in this. And it's, 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 and I was just blown away by it. Sorry. But you um, get the best of both worlds too, because like you get like, Mike Inslin is fantastic, but Olin is incredible. Yeah. And the way he unfolds yes. all of this history. Like I used to listen to this every Halloween as I was driving to work. And I would listen to the first, because it's on two CDs. And I would listen to the first half on my way in. And that's just the whole backstory of Which the Which is already creepy. The, it's yeah. incredible. So. <laughs> yes. And the way he unfolds all of this, it's just so great. And then I would listen to the back half on my way home. And that, and it's like you have the best kind of haunted house tropes. You know, you get this really great backstory. And then you get this like just insanity when he gets in the room. And I'm so in love with the idea that this existed in audio before it existed on a page because like you got you should hear Stephen King read this story like it is 
his gravelly voice reading the voice of the room and like i can hear it it's like nine goddamn fucking nine like just the way he brings it to life is so it's just incredible yeah the numbers are so creepy oh yeah like it's it's the voice of the room and i just i can hear it in my head and it's uh it's it's amazing well, like that line like his delivery is amazing like just even on page it's like it was the voice of the room the presence pouring out of the walls and the floor the presence speaking to him from the telephone had nothing in common with any haunting or paranormal event he had ever read about there was something alien here no not here yet but coming, but it's coming, hungry yeah. and your dinner, like, and just the idea of just, it's so overwhelming. Like King really does try to tackle every sense here that gets mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. And Sensory is a big, cause there's the sound, uh, like when he smell. starts to, the horns on the street uh, are fading, yep. but mm-hmm. he can like hear saxophone. And then like the, when his feet start sticking to the floor, mm-hmm. the air becomes thicker. He's moving like he's underwater, that kind of shit, man. It's really yeah. great. And like, There's a um, saxophone that plays in that part, and it scares the shit yeah. out of me every time because it well, jumps like the, in. The, the, and then the way that things are moving, it reminds me of like an Evil Dead Two when all the things are moving in the in the in the cabin. And granted, like you know that that scene is played for fun and comedic value, but when you think about but like, if it actually happened the to you, of it, it's terrifying. Not funny. Like, mm. And the way that things are like framing up and down, like you know, like a cartoon, and things are melting. Um, and and in the moving portraits, it's just like all of it together. I just was like, I can't. I would. I would have. I wouldn't even been able to light myself on fire. I would just been like, all right, I'm. I'm just gonna kill myself right or now. I like, guess this is my fate. Yeah. Right. It's the difference. If it's the first half of the story and the second half of the story is like a great example of spooky and scary. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yeah. And because mm-hmm. spooky has more comforting pleasures, and I love spooky, uh, but scary is like uncomfortable. You know, it's yeah. like mm-hmm. uh, this is genuinely not fun. Like this is actually upsetting. Like Lynchian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway, and like yeah. that's, and I'm always intrigued by that, the kind of dichotomy between the two of those things, and and like uh, because yeah, in like spooky stories, you get a ghost girl whose spirit just needs to be put to rest, right? Mm-hmm. And right. it can be very creepy, but there's an arc to it, there's a narrative to it. Scary stuff, it's like no, there's no real logic or rhyme or reason to this like this is just uh horror and um i love that well the fact that king was able to pull it off too because Mm -hmm. it is so creepy and it builds so much up to him getting to that room that i remember the first time reading it just being like the payoff is cannot be uh as good as it's set up to be like the you know the twist if you will if there is going to be a twist it can't be as good as he set it up because it's so well set up and then he surpasses everything that you could possibly come up with in your head as to what's going to happen to mike enslin in this room throw it out the window because you have no fucking idea what's going to happen to him in this room it is terrifying and just the little things like you were talking about senses like the smells that he mm-hmm. he experiences and the the feel but also like you said the 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 touch he at one point brushes up against yes. the wall and it feels like skin yep. yeah and like at one point he touches um it's like a menu but he's like it's too soft it yep. shouldn't be like this soft silk. yeah and it's yeah. and then and then he goes how would i know what rotted silk uh-huh. yeah. feel well, like yeah. it's really a loss of control completely well, on that exactly and it's it's irreverent terror 
where you're yeah. like, mm-hmm. where is this coming from? Like just the mention of like the, you know, it was your nickname. It was like the mentioning of the cougar. Yeah. Or not the my cougar, brother uh, the, was the, 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 uh, the wolves. The, yeah. Not yeah. The cougars, my brother was eaten by wolves on a Connecticut like, turnpike. That yeah. And then he's line. like, my brother died of cancer. And then, mm-hmm. and then even just like the numbers, like that, that doesn't really make any sense either. And, yeah. and just what they're, what's actually being screamed. And, and then like the black pores coming, not like mouths. And it's, it's just, when King says that this is a story that scared him, I get it. Like, yeah. he, and that's why I keep wondering, like, like, is this something that he had with the, when he was thinking about the shining? Because, and the reason why I say that is because one of the things I read earlier this year, um, was, or maybe it was last year. I can't remember. Whenever I got the TV guide that had the, before the play in it. And there's a lot of, uh, little short stories that, uh, are about the overlook that are, it's like a prequel. And, What's so scary about those is that they're contained stories just like this. And so he's mm. able to just kind of wield in all these scares without having to get into the backstories of it all that Randall, mm-hmm. we were just talking about, kind of, you know, softens the blow, becomes more spooky, even scary. Yeah. And I do wonder if these are like some leftover tropes that he had just kind of sitting in his head, <laughs> yeah. you know, because my the scariest parts of The Shining for me have nothing to do with any of the actions going on with Jack and, and Danny. It's usually the stuff that, the irreverent terror that I'm talking about where you just yeah. can't explain it. It's just like, yeah. where did that come from? And also where did that come from? from you King, like, where did you come up with this shit? Like, it's so creepy. And I get where it's almost like what he says about pet cemetery where it's like, you know, he thought it was too evil and too scary that he put it into a drawer because he was so terrified of it. And pet cemetery is filled with these type of moments. And yep. this is why I think also is, I think I was also just overwhelmed yesterday because i've been wanting this so much for him <laughs> for a long time and it's not to say that i don't love his right i mean because obviously I still love his right and we're still doing this podcast but i missed that sort of like you're gonna keep me up at night now right yeah. this, it know? feels dangerous when you mm-hmm, read yeah. the second half of this and it's interesting like i was thinking about connecting it to the shining it's like olin's office feels like jack reading the stuff in the basement mm-hmm. and yeah, finding yeah. that yeah. scrapbook and then he just happens upon that line like and they took his balls with him and it's like oh now we're in another world where this is suddenly my life i'm not reading about it from a distance anymore and I love the amp up to this. Like you can really think, look at this as a story in two rooms. We're in Olin's office where we have a safe distance from the scare and even Olin feels safe and comfortable. And then I love how he talks about like Olin starts to get scared, more mm-hmm. scared of it. And he's like, I don't want to get any closer to it. And it's just like, you can, it's palpable. Yeah. And it's last thing I'll say about it is, uh, is, it's like a terror that leaves you dumbstruck. Like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. like when yeah when he sees the people in the in the painting oh, and yeah. um God, this damn. and like he and the, the great thing is that he knows it's them even though like he there's no reason he there's should no know. way he could you, yeah. Yeah. yeah but um it says uh, uh the man on the far left nearest the ship's bow wore a brown wool suit and held a derby hat in one hand his hair was slicked to his brow and parted in the middle his face was shocked and vacant mike knew his name kevin o'malley this room's first occupant a sewing machine salesman who had jumped from this room in october of 1910 to o'malley's left were the others who had died here all with the same vacant shocked expression uh-huh. it made them look related all members of the same inbred and cataclysmically retarded family uh-huh. that's last sentence like got under my skin so bad yes. and, like this vacant shocked expression it's like you know it's not like the ring or like the face is distorted right which is like still really powerful but it's more of just this like odd sense of uh you know dumbstruck dumbstruck terror yeah right and i love the idea that like 
your death is going to look like one thing, but what it actually is, like the world that you are in now, the human mind cannot understand how awful your death is going to be, you know? And also there's a little bit of King's Dominion in that somebody drowns in a bowl of soup, which is the stand. Yeah. 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 Icing on the cake, you know? Yeah. Uh, Love it. Give me chills reading that part. Yeah. Would you say, I was trying (laughs) for every story, I was trying to do like a, uh, you know, what I liked most, what I didn't like. And I had no notes on what I didn't like of this story. I really think it's perfect. It's a I think it it is perfect. Perfect story. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It might be his scariest. I do. I really might. (laughs) Grandma is the other one that comes to mind is like really, really scares me, but I don't know. Well, it's just the ending of this. The ending yeah. is there's no escaping of it, and the the way that he, the way that he can't escape of it feels so real to me. Mm-hmm. Like you know, they don't let it known that it's you know it's not something that like oh you know yeah. something's haunting him still. It's like no, he is haunted right, right. in yeah. him it's now, like his and that's eyes and his heart. Yeah. And who can't relate to that? Final thoughts, Mike. Before yeah, let's get to final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Uh, Who wants to kick it off Uh, on a scale of one to five bright red Pennywise clown noses? uh, Jen, lead us off. Uh, I'm going to give it four and a half, I think. Nah, fuck it. I'm gonna give it five. I oh, love shit. five this noser. Book. I know it's so good. Like especially as we're like unpacking all of that. There's really only one story that I don't like, and that's a personal preference. It's not because it's a bad story. You know, I think this is my third favorite collection after Skeleton Crew and Night Shift. But it's just so good, and I think there's such a wide range of horror here. The audiobooks are really, really well done. Like some of my favorite audiobooks of all time. Um, are here, the ones that I keep going back to. Like, I've listened to 1408, I don't know how many times. I want to listen to it again, like, now that we're done recording, just to kind of enjoy it again. Like, it's just so good. And I I love that he plays with format in this, too, because I think it makes the stories stronger in a way. So, yeah, five, you know? Makes sense. At me. Come at me, bros. Hey. <laughs> well, Ashley, what about you? Um, I would say four. I would say it's a really solid four. Man, no, four and a half. I, I really, because even, like I said, even the stories that like were the lowest on my list, it's not that I didn't enjoy reading them. It's just they happened to be lower. And mm. also, well, maybe lucky quarter. Uh, <laughs> but... but Also, I'm so glad I got to do this episode with you guys because I don't know if I ever would have reread it. And I definitely don't think I would have reread it and then had to analyze what the connective tissue was between them. I don't usually do that with short story collections. I just enjoy them and then they get put on the shelf and I pull them off years later maybe to revisit them. And that's as far as they go. But talking about all these stories and talking about like the deeper aspects of them and how we did have to like rehash some things we had already talked about because they are present in so many of these stories and uh yeah i would say i would say four and a half it does have some of my all-time favorite king stories like 1408 and the man in black suit but it's really good i really liked it and i really loved rereading it yeah randall uh four bright red pennywise clown noses love this it's and i think you know mike i'm similar to you in that 
I wanted to be scared by King again, yeah. you know, like, and it's not to say that there isn't scary stuff in black house. Cause there is, but, um, I think, I think, uh, 1408 and man in black suit scared me in ways that King hasn't in quite a while. And that was, uh, extremely exciting for me. And cause I just, I loved, I was saying this somewhere on break earlier. It's like, I, I it's so hard to find scary books. Like it really, mm-hmm. really is. And, uh, it's so thrilling when you're reminded of like how good King is at this. So really love this. It was a great first read for me. Um, there's a few stories I think are duds and I think that's just where the star comes off. But I mean, this is night shift obviously I think has the stronger hit. Yeah ratio but i think and there's obviously amazing stories in it same with skeleton crew but this one for me i think like the highs of 1408 everything's eventual and man in the black suit are maybe even higher than stuff at night shift you know it's like it's it's a story that it's a collection that i think has these are excellent stories so so yeah i don't know i'm 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 a huge fan uh of a lot of it and um yeah you know i think i i think just some of the duds are the only things that that take away from it. But yeah. How about you, Mike? Four for me, four, uh, bright red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, I mean the strength of 1408, everything's eventual, you know, that feeling you could only say what it is in French, the man in the black suit and God, and all that you love will be carried away. I, I think those are all enough, like 10 out of 10 stories. Like you could make, you know, yeah. become an essential read for constant readers. And mm-hmm. but what I really appreciate about it is kind of what we were discussing earlier is just the hindsight of it all. I mean, King's 55 by the time this is released. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's this sharp, he's this varied, and he's also this spirited. Like there's an energy here that doesn't come off like in a lot of authors at this age where you're totally. like, oh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of just, you know, doing my victory lap. No, he's still like training for the marathon and running at the at, at faster than most people, which is pretty fucking astounding. And I think it also speaks to his virility as a, as a storyteller and in, more specifically an original imaginative storyteller. Um, you know, so none of these stories really dip below a three for me, I would say a three noser for me out of five. So, um, yeah, I think four is good. I think this is a remarkable achievement. And, um, I think like a lot of the stories in night shift, I'm going to return to them, but, um, well, we did it. It's, uh, you know, look, this, this, these episodes were split in two, but we recorded them in one. So we started at 11 AM and it's three 30. (laughs) So we're fucking done. It's time to leave the dolphin before we go. And avoid the terrifying sunset that's going to leave us shivering in our uh, apartments. Let's share where we're going to go next. Ashley, what's next over at Keep It Weird and uh, any haunted hotels coming up? No haunted hotels coming up, unfortunately. I just left my haunted inn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that it's behind me for a while now. Um, No, we've uh, we actually um, the episode that just came out this past week. Randall was our guest. Nice. We discussed Stephen King. Um, It was just sort of a little sort of appreciation episode for him. We've got some true crime coming up. And then Lauren and I are going to be covering the weirdest festivals around the world. And that one's going to be a lot of fun. Ooh, are you going to go to any of them or try to go to them? No, but we are going to dress up. Oh, okay. (laughs) We are going to, we're we're actually going to do this on, uh, as like a YouTube special episode. Um, Obviously, she's in California still and I'm in Illinois now, so it's going to be over zoom but we are going to as we do our research find the most interesting festival and then we have to dress for said festival nice love so it should be fun well, where can uh <laughs> where can our listeners find you on social oh yeah um you can find us um at keep it weird cast is our social media uh handle you can find us on itunes spotify 
uh, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, our website is www.keepitweirdpodcast.com. Nice, nice. Jen, what can our listeners find over at Psychoanalysis? Well, soon you're going to find Ashley because she's going to do a comfort horror episode yes. with us that oh. I'm super excited about. Um, we just finished up one of our heaviest topics to date, but we are going to finish it with some fun because our 100th episode is going to wow. be Yay. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So we're super excited. We're going to do a discomfort horror episode, I think, where we talk about the scary movies that we are too scared to watch. And well, I've got like a that. long list, starting with Titan there, which just about killed me in the first 15 oh, minutes. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, and then we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. I think we're going to do an episode on misery and toxic fandom down the road. We don't have that totally planned out yet, but just lots of fun stuff. So, yeah. Nice. And Randall, where were you, where are we going from here? Where are we sticking uh, around? Our next book is From a Buick 8, yeah. which uh, we'll be covering mm-hmm. in August. Uh, August, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. It's our August read. Yeah. I have no idea of time anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, the 1408 movie episode, stay tuned for that. Uh, the, our guest on it, his name's Josh Sigourney. He's a friend of mine from Chicago. And um, he, he, told me in 2017 that 1408 was his favorite horror movie of all time and that and we had just started the pod and so he said please let me on to talk about 1408 i'm holding true to that promise he is going to be on our episode to defend well i mean i don't think i'll be trashing it or anything but he is going to defend it as uh, one of the great horror movies of all time so we'll be excited to uh to hear from him and then um and share our own thoughts and then uh, and we've also got a film festival coming up in Chicago. We do. In, over Labor Day weekend, we're going to be doing a Stephen King film festival featuring a Shining Doctor Sleep double feature in addition to a lot of other exciting things. So uh, book it. Labor Day weekend, Chicago, Illinois, the Music Box Theater. We're going to be there. We're going to be doing a live recording. We're going to have a party. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of movies and um, merch. So yeah. please come, uh, come see us. Come one, come all. As yeah. they say uh, in, in the biz, but uh, what they also say in the biz is uh, that's a wrap. Uh, so be sure to pull down every shade and blind and drape in your house and wait in the dark until the light, even the last fading glow along the horizon. Wait till it's gone for good. But rest assured, we'll be back chasing the tower once and for all over long days and pleasant, and pleasant nights. nights. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.